This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, happy 2020. This week's episode is a chat with Lambda Legal staff attorney Carl Charles. I really love this person, actually. We had a great chat. Um, And if you live in Salt Lake City, I will be in town January 26th for one show only. And if you don't live in Salt Lake City, guess what? Good news is I've got a big book tour that's going to be announced very soon and a second tour going to some different cities that's going to be announced after that. So just stay tuned on all my socials and here on Query, and I promise I will see you soon. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling, I know, I know, I know it's careless. I always have guests introduce themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Carl Charles. And I'm a staff attorney in the New York office of Lambda Legal. Wow, thank you so much for um, popping over to the studio and taking some time out from your day. How many how many staff attorneys work for Lambda Legal? I actually don't even know the answer to that. Uh, we have a pretty robust legal department. I, I don't know the exact number, but I want to say it's uh, more than 22. Okay. And what's the, what is the like, I mean, I'm going to ask you some really weird questions, but I Go feel like it. this is like stuff that I have no idea about. So like, <laughs> what is your office like? Like, is, it, is this just like, this looks like a law firm? Like, what is, what is it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, so we are, uh, you know, our office in New York is done on Wall Street. And when I tell people that, I think they get an idea in their head about uh, about us being in a very fancy building. And, um, you know, we, we definitely are grateful to be in the building that we're in, but... Um, you know, the the building actually gets a subsidy because they lease uh, some of their properties to nonprofits. So our building down on 120 Wall uh, actually has a number of different great nonprofits in the building. Uh, we've been there, gosh, uh, more than 10 years. Um, and, you know, it's I would say it's, it's pretty modest. We have, um, you know, one of my favorite things about the office, of course, is all the people who work there. Uh, who make it really feel like a place I like to come into. We're all, you know, uniquely committed to the cause of uh, the civil rights of LGBT plus people and the rights of all people living with HIV and AIDS. So, um, you know, I think uh, the people make the place in my mind. Um, I will say the one thing that's not modest is we have a spectacular view. Uh, and you're more than welcome to come in sometime and I can show you our little our little balcony and um, we we have a nice view of Brooklyn. So, um, you know, I think that's one of the really lovely things about our office. But another thing I really like is that we have um, um, newspaper clippings and posters and all kinds of um, gay history paraphernalia. And I use gay very broadly. I mean, LGBT um, history, you know, dating back from, you know, one of my favorite posters says, join gay lib. Um, and every day I walk by that, I'm like, yes. I oh my God, that gay is lib. awesome. Yeah. yeah, it's very cool. Um, but yeah, I, it's, it's a home away from home for a lot of us. And, and each of our offices really, um, also sort of 
uh, tell their own story. So, And are you in a, specifically, are you in an office or do you guys work in like, I know this sounds so weird, but I think, are you guys in like cubicles? Like how, where, where are you sitting? Where do you spend your yeah, days? Yeah, we, so we have some, um, we do have some cubicles uh, that some of our folks are in. Um, and, and then, you know, most of our, I'd say the majority of our attorneys are in offices. Um, they're not, they're not big, but they are, um, they're, I, I think they're great. I mean, um, I've been a, a LGBT rights lawyer for my entire legal career, which is a whopping five years now. <laughs> uh, and up until now, I've never had an office. So I've always worked in cubes. Wow, congrats. Um, thank you. Thank you. It, it does feel like an accomplishment. I finally uh, framed my law school diploma because I got an office and I had a wall to hang it on. Uh, Mom's really proud of that. Um, uh, I, you know, I've put up uh a uh, few different things. Uh, one of my favorite artists, uh, Micah Bazant. Uh, you probably know his work. He does a lot of the um, uh, work for Family Together, I think, is the org that he's associated with. Um, and he's an artist in residence for them. And um, he does some beautiful, beautiful stuff of trans women of color, trans folks in general, LGBT people throughout history. Um, so I, f- I framed one of his uh, pieces and put that in my office. Um and then I've just got a bunch of other, like, you know, LGBT paraphernalia, as one would say. Um, postcards of LGBT people throughout history, um, pictures of my dog, things like that. You know, I, I ask these questions because, I, I, well, I feel like Lambda Legal is something I had, like, name recognition. Uh, you know, it... it it, I feel like it has name recognition in our community anyway. It was something I was aware of. It was a, an organization I was aware of. Um, and still, I got to host an event. Um, I don't even remember when this was, like eight months ago or something. And it was- Yeah, earlier uh, this year. Yeah, it was um, an award show or or like a, what is the right word? Uh Gala, maybe, but there, but yeah. there were awards given, um, and so I was hosting that, and then, you know, that always is like, ends up. I've done several of those, or many of those, where it's you're raising money for the organization, but part mm-hmm. of the draw is that there are going to be celebrities there who are going to be honored. It makes a lot of sense in uh, Los Angeles because we have access to folks who are on TV that are queer and. There are folks who would want to spend some money to buy a table to honor them. It makes sense as a fundraiser. Um, and for me, the most interesting thing is always meeting the people who actually do the work because mm. it is it is something that, like, even if I'm aware of a, an organization, it's so different to speak to people who, like, this is their, this is their life. This is their job. Um, yeah. And so, you know, that's why I was asking a little bit more about what your offices are even like. Just something like that because – what you're talking about, about like a subsidy, first of all, that's very New York, you know, for, for you <laughs> to know. have a subsidy on Wall Street, <laughs> very New York. Um, but I, you know, it's, it also is funny to think about you guys being sort of, um, you know, maybe in a fancy building or something, but being the, but aware of your status in yeah. that building, you know, you yeah. know who you are in that building, which is its own, which is its own thing. Right, um, right. And I would also imagine that you said you've been a, uh, an attorney for five years. Um, 
I we're also not even sitting across from each other. I have literally, and you're like a little blown out by the lighting. <laughs> I know I the have lights. Yeah, no idea what general age you are. So I will ask <laughs> you: um, Is this your is this your first career, or did you go back and become an attorney after doing something else? Uh, this is my second career. Actually, I went to school in. Um, uh, uh, at a state university about an hour north of Denver, Colorado, and I went to school to be a teacher, to be an educator. Um, What's an hour north of Denver? What city is that? Uh, a lot of, it's called Greeley, Colorado. I was going to say, an hour north of Denver is a lot of farmland sure. and cows. Um, but yeah, I went to the University of Northern Colorado, and um, you know that's actually where I f- first came out as any kind of queer. And um it was a really transformative experience for me, even though I was not in a big city. Um, I met some some really amazing people who I, you know, still have the good fortune to be friends with today. Um, and uh, yeah, so so I um, I worked as a teacher for about four years in and around Denver um, before I decided I wanted to go to law school. So. When you were in Greeley, I'm just assuming rural Colorado, this is, I've been to some parts of, or I'm I'm used to putting the word rural out, rural out there. Yeah. Is that what you would yeah, say? Yeah. Rural? That's right. Rural. Yeah. Um, I've been to some places in uh, rural, rural Colorado, and it is um, a very, well, first of all, very red, but also very like guns and hiking and uh outdoorsy but that Mm -hmm. but like a very specific sort of um i don't know i'm just thinking of like the sign that's like we don't call 911 and then there's like a gun under it like that kind of sign (laughs) and someone's you know like that that's what i think of when i think of rural rural Mm -hmm. colorado Mm -hmm. um was that the type of place that this was like that kind of like a you know we're out here making it i i think um when i was up when i was in Greeley, which was uh you know sort of the mid aughts, um, you know, from about, I'm going to date myself approximately, which is fine, uh, to, <laughs> so that you don't just have a general idea of my age. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I was up there from about 2002 to 2006 and, you know, it was the kind of thing where the, the friends I made would go home on the weekend and home was 10 minutes away and it was a dairy farm. Right. Um, and, you know, I remember very distinctly my first trip to a gay bar uh, when I was 19. And we actually had to drive to Fort Collins, Colorado, to find a gay bar. Uh, and the gay bar was a double-wide trailer, and it was called Static, and it was amazing. It was— That sounds amazing. <laughs> it, was just, it was incredible. I mean— um, you know, I, it was the kind of thing where I would go and get big Sharpie X's on my hands and, uh, and could, you know, could drink um, soda and water and uh, marvel at all the people who were drinking alcohol and uh, dance and be around other queer people. And it was uh, at times scary and at times really liberating. Um, and... That kind of sums up my experience being an openly queer person in northern Colorado. Is Where are you from? Uh, I'm actually from Colorado Springs, Colorado. Also a terrifying place. Sure, I've been to Colorado <laughs> to Springs. To be queer, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I grew up um, in a very strict evangelical family and also a military family. So Colorado Springs, I'm sure you know, um, has a That makes huge, sense, yeah. Um, 
uh, group of uh, military bases, you know, four Air Force bases and one Army base. So um, huge concentration of, of military folks there. And so. your parents directly were in the military? Like, Yeah, my my, uh, my grandfather and my dad are both retired lieutenant colonels in the Air Force. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, yep. I think I have a... I think I have like a picture. You're, you're I think I, a picture. Yes, <laughs> I do. I yeah. Uh, um, okay, and so you were teaching, and around Denver area, mm-hmm. and then what was the next step for you? Yeah, so I my first teaching job actually I graduated in December, which is a weird time to try to find a teaching job, as you might imagine. Um, and so through a friend of my mom's, I got a job teaching at a school that was in a um, a private not-for-profit jail for young people. Um, I, I um, you know, it's sometimes referred to as like a residential treatment facility, but it was a jail. It was contracted through the state of Colorado, um, and they had youth age 12 to 20, I'm sorry, age 12 to 20, um, uh, two-thirds of which had been adjudicated as um, a sex offenders of some kind. Um and that was my first teaching job. Um, I I learned a lot uh, about a number of things. Um, you know, the the first of which was the criminal justice system in this country, and more specifically in uh, in Denver. Um, it won't surprise you to know that m- almost all of the youth in that facility were youth of color, black and brown youth, and um, actually. While I was there, I had uh, my first opportunity to meet, to my knowledge, and advocate for a, a trans youth, you know, a, a young person who was trans. Uh, and I myself was not out as, as trans at that point. I knew, to my knowledge, zero trans people. Um, uh, and I didn't really know what I was doing, but I knew that this young person, um, and and I'm going to call her Maria just to, you know, of course, protect her privacy. Um, I knew she should be called her name and I knew she should be referred to with she her pronouns and you know fortunately the in the facility that I was working with because it was so focused on therapy right family therapy the youth got individual therapy and they did group therapy because it was such a therapeutic environment the school staff were really receptive to my polite and insistent arguments that this young person be respected for who she was um so that was a really uh sort of fundamental experience for me as a professional, right? Uh, of course, as a teacher, but also as just a, a queer person in the world. Um, yeah. I, I learned a lot. Yeah. Wow. You know, um, I actually have a, just a little bit of familiarity with the population that you're talking about. Um, I, after school, after college, I um I worked at a I worked at a charter high school as a tutor um which then kind of got me into the school system and then I went and worked at a um a school that was just for kids and this is the wording that the school used I don't know like maybe now the appropriate wording would be handicapped, but at the time people were using the phrase severe special needs. So like f- severe s- physical special needs was was how it was like even, you know, written about on their, um, 
their language and the things that the parents and the kids used. So it's, it's, I don't know the answer on updated language there, but because I was having this familiarity with the school system and I was also, or with different school systems, and I was also doing improv at the time, um, improv comedy, I, I had a, my girlfriend was a social worker and she worked at a, she worked at, she would have used the phrase residential treatment facility, yeah. but it was um, what you were talking about. It was not um, not simply kids who couldn't be placed in foster care, but but some some youth who were um, serving time. Yeah, and um, I would go there and teach them improv classes. Amazing! Uh, yeah, that's incredible. It was incredible. It was incredible, and um, this was actually all female was the, de- it was mm-hmm. for juvenile female sex offenders. Um, mm-hmm. And so I would go and, you know, again, this is a lighter um, set of involvement in these young people's lives, but it was very apparent to me that, it, yeah, this is like mostly folks, people of color, obviously the other thing that really is true, because then I eventually worked um, at a, then I eventually worked at a, at a group home slash treatment facility. And the other thing that I don't think we talk about is how, if like you're a young person in this situation, much like the percentages are very, very high that, that this is generational for you. Um, And so that is another thing that makes it very, um, it's, you know, tough to then interact with somebody being incarcerated for something. They're a minor. Mm-hmm. This is something that happened to them. Mm-hmm. They are generally generationally acting out the way that they know how to interact with people, right. you know, and then we as a culture, our only responses to that we know of now is to just like, you know, isolate and try mm-hmm. to redirect or punish. Right. Um, so I can really imagine that 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 would be a lot to see for somebody because um, I, I felt very impacted by these oh, yeah. experiences and, and seeing these different ways that, you know, um, how, how different young people grow up and ways that if you fall through the system, um, you can get really stuck. Yeah. So I, uh, I go, oh, ahead. go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, thank you for sharing that with me. Um, I guess you're sharing it for the listeners also, but I, I appreciate, you know, um, I think a lot of us uh, who are connected to fields where we are, you know, building connections with people and 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 giving care to people, um, have been in these, have worked these kinds of jobs, and um, you know, I was ill prepared. I mean, but I, 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 and I had a pretty decent teacher education, but I was not prepared to deal with as you as you really aptly described the generational trauma of incarceration and the fact that um, for a lot of the families of these young people, they weren't, they, they were not being given other uh, options to help care for their children, right? Except for like certain authorities and certain justice systems. And those systems are really geared to funnel people in a certain direction. Um, so there were a lot of youth there. I mean, you know, when I say adjudicated as sex offenders, I think people's eyes kind of bulge out and they get really 
um, um, afraid and not sure what that means. But, you know, we're talking about things where, and I'm not trying to minimize any kind of inappropriate um, sexual behavior, but, you know, I'm talking about kids were there for things that were, you know, bona fide sexual assault and and all on the other um, far end of the spectrum, like an inappropriate um touch on a bus, right? And they would be literally in the same facility getting the same kinds of treatment. Um, and, and there didn't seem to be a lot of recognition about the varying kinds of interventions that that folks need um, or that there was a way to help them that didn't focus on incarceration. So, um, you know, I learned a lot of this after the fact. Uh, in the moment, it was just very, it was a lot to just process uh, every night at home with my partner and um, and with my friends and family, and um, you know, I, I it, it really transformed the way I thought about who gets educated in our country and how um, and why, um, and and uh, it, it just gave me great insight into I think um, what we what we do for young people and what we don't do for them um, by virtue of of our various um, education systems. So. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I I really um that was my experience too was that um you know my girlfriend worked at this facility, my then girlfriend worked at this facility full time and was like studying social like like about like, you know, I mean it wasn't yeah. this is not this is not like and then after 10 years of specialized <laughs> <laughs> treat you know education um right. and then you know when I worked at I worked at a uh I worked at a facility when I was briefly in social work school um, that was for like like young people, young people. So mm -hmm. um, folks that were generally like less than 10 who couldn't, oh, wow. younger than 10, who couldn't be placed in foster care because they themselves were offenders. And mm -hmm. then, you know, you deal with the thing of, okay, well, this is a six-year-old who is, you know, inappropriately touching people, mm -hmm. but this is from... A source of knowledge that like is trauma like this person right. had trauma they're acting out that trauma that we don't we don't have we don't know how to, what to do with that person they've they, right. they've that's why that that phrase of like you know once you like fall out of the system it's just you know it becomes very hard to then um get back in and i could you know especially for because a lot of this also interacted with like queerness in just oh, yeah. that, you know, the way that these kids were, if they were young people who were um, hypersexualized because of experiences that, that they had had, mm -hmm. um, that can come out in a bunch of different ways and then be read by adults in a right. bunch of ways that also make them really uncomfortable. Right. So if you think about trying to place that child in, a fo in foster care and yep. they're, you know, like a six-year-old effeminate boy who touches other people's penises. It's like, literally, what are you supposed to do with that person? Right. Um, and so, anyway, I, I, what what this did in, in me is, you know, I'm, I'm so um, floored still that I had these experiences. And then I went and decided I should focus on just one of my careers and continue to be a stand-up comic. Uh -huh. But it sounds like what it did for you was like awaken maybe some need for additional justice to be served out there in the world. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really, I mean, it, it, um, it, you know, I, I appreciate what you said there about the ways that, that queerness, uh, is inextricably linked to the ways that, um, that, that I think, uh, 
like the criminalization of of behavior and sexuality works in our country. Um, You know, there were youth there who, it's not really clear to me, like, in retrospect, I'm wondering, like, you know, did a parent just walk in on them with a a person who that parent read as same-sex and thought, I now need to, like, alert the authorities. My child might be queer. I, you know, looking back, I can't be sure. And I think that's, um, I think that's something that's still happening in a lot of the systems um, in our country today. But yes, I, you know, advocating for this young person and seeing how many of those young people identified as LGBT and were, um, you know, were in a facility, were incarcerated. Um, I I took that with me to my next two teaching jobs, which were not in facilities, which were in a charter school outside of Denver and then a very large public school outside of Denver. Um, but I found the same thing to be true, right? Which is that no matter what I did in my classroom um, to protect uh, LGBTQ youth, they would leave and bad shit would happen to them. Um, yeah, I, in their families, you know, I had to report a fair amount of familial abuse when I was a, an educator. Uh, in their communities, uh, you know, kids were being bullied and beaten up outside of school and coming to school um, and telling me about these things. And, you know, I, it wasn't to say that I didn't like teaching or or didn't feel like that was a worthy um, career. Uh, it really is uh, one of the most um, underappreciated professions in our country still. Um, although shout out to all the teachers striking across the country for for better wages and, and better classroom um, environments. But, uh, you know, I felt like I wanted to take on this larger social problem um, of the the treatment of and attitude towards LGBT people in the world broadly. And, and I, it was a little naive um, of me um, uh, to think, I, I think that I would necessarily have, would be value added to this fight. I didn't know much about the fight at the time. Um, I just knew I wanted to be a part of it. And so that's what drove me to law school. Um, and I did go to law school at the University of Denver, also in Colorado. Um, uh, and that was sort of the beginning of my uh, foray into LGBT rights advocacy work. You know, you and I actually have so much in common because, you know. Tell me more. Well, just, I think that for me, I saw some things that I that I could see other people maybe working on in one particular way. And then I had a vision for myself where I could work on the same issues. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, it's like, like for, you know, I, it doesn't, it doesn't at all seem weird to me that I was in social work school while I was starting my stand-up career, then dropped out and like, cause to me, it's like, it's, it's been the same thing, which is essentially like ministry, which I also wish that, you know, that that word, made more sense to me because I don't actually believe in like some big sky Mm -hmm. man, but I, you know, was raised really religious and it made sense to me to, you know, minister to people and try to talk to them about what they thought that they were true was true and to be there for them. And, you know, for a minute when I was super religious, then I thought that that would mean I was a priest. And then when I wasn't religious, I thought that would mean like one-on-one counseling. And I thought that Mm. that would be more impactful with marginalized communities. So Mm -hmm. folks who, have something going on physically or folks who are, you know, LGBTQ mm-hmm. or, or folks who are um, marginalized because they're incarcerated. And so that those are the types of populations that I um, was drawn to. And then eventually, like, figuring out that I wanted to 
just do this job. I just feel like I've been doing the same shit forever. It just has looked very different, but on the yeah. inside, it has felt the same. Yeah. So I, I you think know. that's a beautiful way to put it. And I think what you're doing, I, your work, I think, and the work of a lot of um, uh, of queer folks in pop culture and media, I, I think ministry is a great word for it. And I share your sentiment. I, I wish we could sort of take some ownership of that word. <laughs> um, you know, because to me, ministry is 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 creating community, right? Is connecting people to one another and um, yeah, I see that thread running through your work for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you. And um, going to law school and then graduating, did you know, was it, it just felt like this is absolutely, the, or the whole time you're in school, did it feel that this is a population I'm going to work with? This is the, this is the type of law I want to do. Did that feel clear to you? I, I wouldn't say all, I, I have to be honest and say not always, right? I think for my, for, for a little bit of, of law school, I'd say right at the beginning, I had a, a, a thought that I would see what big law firm life was like, and I would go make buckets of money, and then I would donate several of those buckets <laughs> to causes I believed in, right? right. Um, and then after my first semester of law school, I came out as trans, and uh, that to me was as you might imagine, and as I'm sure other people have shared with you, a really um, uh, sort of life-altering experience. Not sort of, it was. Um, I I had, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to say I had known for the entirety of my life um, that I was trans, but I certainly had known in the lead-up to law school that, like, this gender thing was going to have to get sorted out uh, at some point in the near future. And... Um, uh, after first semester exams, during which I did not flunk out, so right that I was like, okay, if I don't flunk out, I will come out to my classmates. So I didn't flunk out. I, I passed my exams. Um, over over the holiday break, I wrote an email to uh, to my evening division. I was in um, night school at the University of Denver. I was working during the day. Uh, don't recommend, <laughs> but sure, it worked out. Yeah. It worked out okay. Full schedule. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I wrote an email to my peers, to my colleagues, um, and said, look, um, this is my deal. Please call me Carl. Please use he, him, his. Um, I, I, I gave a few links to some resources, you know, Sylvia R Rivera Law Project, GLAAD, um, uh, and a, a couple of other like Trans 101 resources for people. Uh, and I was nervous, right? Because as we just discussed, Colorado at that time, uh, even in, two, you know, around 2010, still kind of like a reddy, purpley state, like le leaning more towards purple and now solidly blue as it is. But um, at, and in 2010, many of, my, um, many of my peers in law school I knew to be very conservative, uh, very religious people, and I, and you know, I grew up that way. I understand it, um, and and I, you know, I I wanted to to be respectful, but I also needed to live my life, right? I I um, we get one, we get one life, um, and I needed to live mine, and and so um, I, I got to tell you, I received the most um, warm, uh, compassionate. Um, kind responses from people who I really did not expect to react that way at all, um, uh, and it 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 endeared me to my classmates, and it it um, it gave me a, a great deal of hope for my place uh, both in the world and, and in this profession, which which um, can you know can be a pretty conservative uh, a profession. 
Um, and so once I came out as trans in law school, I really started gearing my work also towards advocating for uh, primarily for trans people, um, but of course for LGB people as well. But, you know, my world sort of exploded in terms of my awareness of other trans people across the country and what what they were experiencing, right? And um, in particular, the experiences of, of Black trans people, trans people who are undocumented, trans people living with HIV and with disabilities. Um, and I just sort of knew that this was now officially my path. And I have friends who make buckets of money and they give it to great causes, <laughs> uh, uh, folks who work in big law. But I, I don't feel like I missed out on anything necessarily. Um, you know, uh, and I, I do think I know now even more clearly the important role that our pro bono partners at big law firms play in our work, we couldn't do it without them is the reality. So I know if I had taken that path, I, there would have been a place for me there too. So. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because that that is something that I kn- literally just know about because I was at this event and, and folks were talking about the work you actually do. But could you tell for our listeners and just a little bit more about what you mean by your pro bono partners? Sure. So, um, you know, Lambda Legal has grown considerably over our 46-year history. Um, and, you know, we've we've gone from a, an organization with a budget in, 19, in the ni- late 1970s of like less than 50K, which, you know, in, in today's money is like less than 350K, which is like a drop in the bucket in terms of uh, litigation. But, um, you know, we really rely uh, significantly on our pro bono partners, not just for um, you know, uh, not, not just for their financial sponsorship of our work, but for the actual work, right? So, for example, um, in in one of our big cases today uh, that I'm involved in, Karnowsky v. Trump, where we're challenging uh, Trump's uh, ban on open trans service in the military, um, we're working with a law firm, Kirkland & Ellis, and they, you know, they basically provide us with um, associates that's, you know, more junior attorneys with partners. Um, They bring in some of their heavy hitters to work on the case. They bring their expertise. They bring their resources. They bring their talent. Um, And that's just one example. I mean, so many of our cases we partner with with law firms to do. um, And, you know, they they donate, like I said, they donate their talent. They donate their facilities. um, They they're they're in the trenches with us in in so much of the work we do. So, um, you know, that's something that I didn't really know when I was in law school and really learned um, once I got out into into practice how important uh, those partnerships are. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! 
Those attorneys, is their hourly rate being don't like are they donating their hourly rate or is the company covering their hourly rate and then the company donates the money do you get do you know the question i'm asking yeah I like think is so. it so, the attorney's not being paid or is it the company's paying the attorney no, to do work for you it's uh it is the latter mostly if i'm understanding you right yes. so mostly it is that firms will you know some firms it really runs the gamut right some firms um uh, don't have a limit on the number of pro bono hours you can bill, right? And there are, I wish I knew them off the top of my head, but I don't, but there are some some um, AM100 law firms where associates can f- count towards their billable hour requirement as many pro bono hours as they want, which is super uh, incredible. So to right? work at one of these big firms, I'm going to break this down even further. I yeah, like yeah. grew up in like a legal family, so I think I'm oh. following you. Um, okay. But I feel like there are many people probably... I feel like the law and to maybe break it down. I just feel like it's like these are really opaque concepts unless you grow up around them. So what you're talking about is like if you are at one of these really big firms, you have a minimum number of billable hours because if you're an attorney, you work on an hourly rate and Mm -hmm, you are mm -hmm. you keep track of your hours Mm -hmm, and then you're mm -hmm. sending a bill of your hours to the client. Like on this particular case, I worked yep. eight hours. I charged this number amount per hour. That's the bill that you get in the mail. That's and at a, at a big firm, it would be like a big bill. But what you're talking about is, and so essentially the attorney's not making that money. The company is making that. Right. The company's right. making the money. And you your responsibility as an attorney is to bill enough hours so that you're f- floating for the whole company that money right. coming in. So what yep. you're saying is if there's no limit on pro bono hours, which you're not paid for, um, that means that they can be working whatever. I don't even know what the hour, like they could be working 35 hours a week uh, mm-hmm. on cases that they're being paid for. They could be working 20 hours a week on cases, on cases they're not being paid for. And mm-hmm. that all counts toward the total, com- the total number That's of right. hours they owe the company to continue right. to be employed there. Exactly. Yeah. The company's not, the, the law firm's not going to say, for example, well, you only build, uh, you know, a hundred hours to your, to your paying clients and you build like 80 hours to your pro bono cases. Sorry, that's, we're not going to be able to keep you. They honor that time that you're essentially donating and they make up for it in their, in their budgets. So yeah, that was a, Cameron, that was a great uh, primer. I don't fuck around. I do not fuck around. Um, I'm extremely impressed. (laughs) uh, Yeah. um, I actually used to also be a law clerk. Look, I've had a lot of jobs. Wow. Um, Yeah. But what... (laughs) Amazing. The reason I think it's really important to talk about that is because... So I think as queer people, I think that we assume the spaces that we occupy are like just the space you occupy. Like what I mean by that is, and first of all, and also you're definitely not on Wall Street. Like I think what we think about (laughs) ourselves is that like we essentially are, you know, um, like in a dilapidated building, like alone, separate from the rest of the legal profession. Mm -hmm. And um, we're like fighting outside the system. And I think what, what can be very important to point out, and this is, I think this is important because you know, we live in a time where, like, socialism, um, where, where certain 
ideas about what system could help us are floating around that like really work for our community. Now, mm-hmm. I, I do think that like capitalism fucks us more than most people. But um, I also think that we don't talk enough about how like there are queer people in huge firms who have the the benefits of working there and the connections mm-hmm. of working there mm-hmm. and then are able to donate hours back. Mm-hmm. How there are your friends that you talked about who are making those big salaries and then donate mm-hmm. their money back, right. which then which then pays your salary. Right. And that you are also like the third part of this triangle who is, you know, dedicating your full life to this. And I think it's really important to talk about that whole system because first of all, it places us as in the mix. You know, I think like we imagine ourselves as so outside the mix that I think that that it's like, that's not even really who we are. Like Mm -hmm. we're fucking Mm -hmm. in there and we always Mm -hmm. have been. It's just Mm -hmm. that maybe now we're able to be a little bit more, you know, out or visible or actually work on cases that are important to us. Um, But I'm saying this because if you are somebody who, you know, is listening and you and you don't want to be what what you and I have chosen to do, you know, like you don't you're mm-hmm. not you don't want to be a stand-up comic, you don't want to be <laughs> a lawyer who works at Lambda Legal, you don't know how well how do I get in the fight? It's yeah. like different people are in the fight in different ways, have always been and yep. will always continue to be. I, I hosted a dinner for Planned Parenthood a bunch of years ago and the board was there and um, like celebrities or notable people who support mm-hmm. them were there mm-hmm. and the like governing body, the president and the providers wow. were there. So it was like, here's the figurehead of the business and the, like the other, like the CEO, here's the people that donate money that all worked at like everything we think of as evil, like every mm-hmm. New York based mm-hmm. corporation that we think of as evil, evil. Here's the providers. And all these people are actually in the same room working on the same issue. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a nuance that can get lost. Um, uh, especially now where it can be easy to sort of, you know, see, uh, one, you know, action or affiliation and, and then have to, you know, uh, people feel like, there's this expectation that there's sort of a moral judgment that immediately falls, right? Like, X did this, therefore no. Um, hmm. And and the reality, which I know you you and I both know, is like life is so much more complicated than that, you know. Um, and, and people are all the time sort of sifting through these these um, decision points, and and you know I think uh, it's it's really hard to say that that. Um, you know, a person or an organization is all bad or all good. I mean, I think we, you know, we see all the time people do, you know, people who we thought were formerly bad do really morally right things. Um, and and so uh, not to say that's necessarily what we're talking about here when we're talking about big law firms. I think, um, I, I, I just think there's a lot of nuance uh, that your example really, really points out. And we we have that too in the LGBT advocacy space, you know. Um yeah, so. that's exactly right. That's exactly what I was. That's my experience anyway. That's what I see yeah. is that yeah. there's a lot of different access points um, yeah. that people can get involved. But I would like to talk more about, you know, specifically what your sort of day to day life is like, what your what your job is like, what you mm-hmm. are actually doing to what is what's happening in that office? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, we stay busy. Um, it's a busy time, as you may imagine. I, um, you know, I was actually working for the the city of New York uh, right before the 2016 election. Oh my goodness! And, yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, and I've heard of it. The city of New York heard of it. Yes. Keep going. I, I was working for the New York City Commission on Human Rights, which enforces uh, the country's most expansive human rights law. And so I was sort of doing adjacent work, right? But I'm working for the government, so I'm technically nonpartisan. We're, we're a neutral third party. And then, you know, 20, November 2016 happened. And uh, it was a very tough moment for me to not be an advocate. And so, you know, in February of 2017, Lambda Legal announced they were opening up a couple of fellowships. I applied for a fellowship in the Transgender Rights Project, and I was really fortunate and honored to be offered that position. So I joined Lambda Legal in in the summer of 2017, mere weeks before President Trump tweeted that transgender people were a burden and had no place in the military. Um, And so... I, I, t- I tell you that story to to give you a snapshot of what my day can look like at Lambda, right? So that breaking news happens, right? And uh, with good reason, trans people start freaking out. We start getting calls to our help desk. Uh, we're getting emails. People are, are DMing us on Twitter um, because people are like, what? Like, what is going on? What does this mean? What's going to happen to my family and my livelihood and my life? Like, I'm in Korea or I'm in Texas or I'm in, you know, Maryland. Like, what? I'm up for promotion. Like, what is happening? Um, And so, you know, I was part of the sort of what I call the first response team, people who jumped on the phone right away with with our community members who were calling in and and, um, people who wanted to to throw their hat in the ring to be in the fight. Um, so we we have that sort of immediate response team, and then our our then we have our 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 legal response, right? Which is where all of us get in a room and start talking about what we weren't sure about legally at that time, which was do tweets count as official White House policy? Like that was the conversation we were having right. in the summer of 2017. We were like, we do not know if tweets count as official White House policy. So we had some back and forth. We talked it over. Um, you know, I have. I think some of the most brilliant uh, um, and talented colleagues in in the movement, and so, you know, we decided to wait uh, and and you know didn't file our our lawsuit until later when the White House issued a formal policy statement. Um, but since that time, we have learned tweets are policy, and that, that is the. I'm so sorry to interrupt. No, no, please. That's really interesting. That is the the. And you said it earlier, and I cannot believe I don't know the name of this case. But oh, Karnowski v. Karnowski, Trump. Yeah, that is mm-hmm, that is mm-hmm. the case that, that you're it. talking about. Yeah. Yep. And so, um, how did you waited until it was official policy? We did. And yeah. Then I'm mm-hmm. oh, sorry. No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Yeah, we. That was our decision, and and um, you know, sister groups uh, like like Single Aid Glad, which is. Um, uh, now LGBTQ uh, legal advocates uh, based out of um, uh, Massachusetts and then National Center for Lesbian Rights, which is based in California, they went ahead and, and went first. They they filed the first lawsuit and before the policy was, um, you know, before it was like official White House policy, um, just based on the tweets and then sort of the rest of us. Uh, and then by that, I mean Lambda Legal and ACLU and other groups filed after. Um, and uh, yeah, so we... 
that was the legal conclusion we came to. We drafted up the papers. We got our plaintiffs in order. Uh, we represent a, a group of both individuals who are currently, who are service members, current service members, um, and trans people, of course. Uh, a group of people who wanted to enlist, trans people who were trying to enlist in the military. And then we also represent some uh, service member organizations. Um, um who are who who are are membership based and include trans service members in their membership base and so we represent their interests on behalf of their membership when um, you say get your plaintiffs in order because that was the next question that I was going to mm-hmm, ask you mm-hmm. so what does that sort of search look like or how are you are those folks that have come to you and then you're you know waiting until it's the moment where you're going to actually file or like how how is that worked out yeah so there's there's a a few different considerations that go into that you know we think about obviously the legal claims that someone has right yes someone needs to state a set of facts about their experience that line up with the claims we're making in the case right so you know we need someone who wants to enlist in the military someone who is transgender um we need you know um someone who is located in a jurisdiction that we want to file our lawsuit. And then there's a bunch of internal discussions about where, which jurisdiction do we want to be in and how do we decide that? Um, and, and you know, I think, I think, you know, we also think about um, the plaintiffs themselves, right? Like some people, the, the rigors of litigation, I can tell you, are very intense. And we have very frank conversations with people about, look, we recognize you are a, a real life person with a total life and a job and a family potentially, and litigation is going to be stressful and it it's going to involve probably um, media and people across the United States and potentially the world are going to learn your name. Yes. How do you feel about that? You know, we don't we don't um, we don't ask someone um, we don't ask to represent people without being really clear. Um, about the difficulties that's going to entail and could entail for them. You know, not just positive news outlets, but we're talking about Breitbart is going to learn who you are. Right. You know, all of these, um, you know, the the trolls of the universe um, could potentially learn about you. And um, so we take that obligation to potential plaintiffs really seriously to be really frank with them about what being a client is going to look like. Um, you know, we're also clear, like, we don't, our services are free, but also you are doing us and our community broadly a service as well, mm-hmm. right? Um, this is going to take take work from you as well. So, um, you know, those are a lot of the things we think about. You know, obviously we think about representing the range of LGBTQ identities. Um, that includes um, race, racial identities, uh, folks living with disabilities, people living with HIV, um, you know, um, thinking about people who are undocumented, people who come from different parts of the country, we we take all of that into account um, because you know not just are we filing legal claims and telling a story to the court, we are um, you know we're a, a legal advocacy and education group. We are trying to also change hearts and minds. So yeah. we 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 want folks who you know of course want to tell their story, but whose story could could be my story or your story or the story of the LGBTQ person down the road. You know, we want plaintiffs who um, can also educate. So, Right. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I don't know, there could almost be like a, 
some cynicism around what you just said at the end there, but but that is a huge part of that is a that is a <laughs> that is a real part of our legal system that appealing appealing plaintiffs um matter and it and it sucks that that's true it's the difference mm-hmm. between i mean truly somebody who has m- more money and can show that mm-hmm. on their body somebody who has glasses versus somebody who doesn't have glasses treated mm-hmm. differently in a courtroom so it is important and it's it's complicated right because you you know it's it's like it's tough to i think or i would imagine you know that it might be complicated to be like um oh, we're looking for that great plaintiff and and what does that say about how we value all people but mm-hmm. but then you know um we do live in the real world and that is i think for for a lot of these issues it's i mean i don't know if you ever and maybe and you don't have to answer this if this is not something you want to talk about. But have you ever been a, a plaintiff in a case? Have you ever been through the uh, legal system on that uh, side? No, I have not. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I appreciate what you said, right, um, in terms of, like, finding relatable plaintiffs and who is our audience, right? I, I think it's important to acknowledge our our, um, our system is flawed in a lot of the ways that we also are flawed, um, totally. And I, uh, <laughs> yeah, we yeah. are. That's because we made the thing. So right, it values, right, right, you know, right. like pretty people or people who yes. are wealthy. Like, of course it does. Because yes. so do we. Because it's Absolutely. all that we created the fucked system and we're yeah. fucked, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think it's important. You know, the one of the things I love about Lambda Legal is how um, really invested we are in, in changing the systems for people who are, um, you know, who who systems marginalize, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have, um, you know, we're we're working on challenges to Medicaid exclusions for, um, you know, uh, trans affirming healthcare. You know, we've done a ton of of work for people who are incarcerated, pe- trans people who are in prison, um, uh, both in in state court and in federal court, um, and and for you know, for folks who are living with HIV and who've been criminalized by virtue of that. Um, and I, I I think it's, you know, it's, it can seem difficult, but I think we're not necessarily looking for, like, the perfect plaintiff as much as we are um, a good match. You know, we, sure. we want someone who, um, you know, who, we we also don't want to put the burden on on someone with, you know, less um, like you said resources to to be able to navigate the rigors of litigation. But we also aren't just trying to do work for affluent white queer people, right? Right? Like that's that can't be our only focus. Um, of course, a lot of our work impacts those those folks, um, um, and we're proud to do it. But uh, I, I think we over the years, Lambda has really taken seriously um, our responsibility to uh, fight for all folks in the queer community, um, you know, uh, and, 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 and in particular to lift up those who don't typically have access to any kind of justice in their lives. So, Well, one, um, oh, sorry, well, I was just no, saying no, one, no. one, you know, one piece of proof on that end is that you were specifically sought out to work on cases that affect trans folks, 
Whereas, you know, however, I don't even have an accurate number of years ago because things have changed so fast. Oh, yeah. But very recently, that would not have been you right. as the attorney. You know, maybe you as the plaintiff, but not you right. as the attorney. And right. so that is, you know, something to notice and um, to be proud of as a community. And that is something that we need to continue to, like, work in that area to make sure that, you know, it is own voices um, that are involved at all levels. And so that's that's really commendable. I'm so glad that you are somebody who's wor- who is working on these cases. It matters so much more if it is something that you have one-to-one experience with, you know, just in terms of even like your ability to do your job. I would imagine you are provided with an extra set of experiences that, you know, expand your knowledge and make you better at handling this case. So I yeah. think that's, you know, I think that's great. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I I, uh, I appreciate that a lot. And I think that's true, right? Um, um you know, a, a phrase that's, I think, used quite a bit is um, nothing about us without us. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and I think, um, you know, I'm really grateful to be at Lambda Legal and, and um, you know, we, we have, um, you know, four trans attorneys and, and a couple of um, uh, uh, fellows who are also trans. Like, I think, I think organizations um, are working really hard to make sure that the work we do is being done by people um, with with that lived experience. You know, not not that's not the sole right consideration, but um, you know, it, I think it meant a lot. I've heard our, our plaintiffs in a number of cases say the significance of knowing that your attorney can understand some of the things you're describing, some of the experiences of discrimination and the the battles you fought trying to access healthcare or be safe at work. Um, I think that goes a long way. Yeah, it matters. It definitely matters, for sure. And, you know, the final thing I will say that you were sort of hinting at a couple times, and I think it's really important to talk about. Um, You were talking about the burden of experiencing litigation as a plaintiff. And I actually have been a Plaintiff in a case. Oh, I should have asked. No, wow. no. That's a, years ago, I was um, involved in a car. Not involved. I was hit by a car while I was riding my mm-hmm. bike. And I had to sue the person in order to get my medical bills paid for, even though they oh were 100% at fault. Oh, God. Um, and, I'm so sorry to hear that. Oh, I mean, it was a, it was terrible at the time. And also, what an unbelievable experience. Because I actually I had a jury trial. Like, oh I went God. to trial. Um and I won uh, because they were 100% at fault. Like literally it was a, uh, but that is, I am gr- grateful I had this experience because, you know, the police report says that they're 100% at fault. You know, I'm sitting there. You can't directly address the jury. They can't like smile at you. You can't try right. to affect it. I couldn't do, I can't do stand up comedy. You know, like I can't, <laughs> I can't make them be at my side. I just have to try to tell the truth. And also the truth is, is obscured by, you know, it's somebody else's job to make me look um, unreliable. And so, Mm. you know, it was things like, yes, like she went through the windshield with her face and then her face was bleeding, but how do we know the blood was caused by her going through the windshield? It's like things like that where you're in court just being like, I'm a person and I have to listen to this Mm. and my my character is being called into question. Mm -hmm. And yet 
this was about like a bike, a car accident. You know, it wasn't about like my personhood at that moment. Yeah. And even though I was as a queer person also worried that like, what if the jury, you know, looks at me and, and, and hates me. Finds you not deserving. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. I could just imagine, you know, I'm using that experience to say that I can't, I can't actually fathom what it would be like to sit there and the, the, the things that are being torn apart aren't whether or not like where the blood came from, but whether or not, you know, I truly am trans or whether Mm -hmm. that really does affect my ability to be in this place or if that means Mm -hmm. something about me as a predator. And, you know, Mm -hmm. the many things that I know are argued. I would imagine that's a huge burden on anybody. And we as a community owe such a debt to the people who are plaintiffs in these cases, but also to you specifically for the point that I just made which is that this is like a community that you are a part of. This is an identity yeah. that you have. I, I appreciate you saying that a lot. I, I think a, a lot about our clients and and about the the emotional and, and intellectual labor they do for us and for the community. Um, but I, you hit on something that really hits home for me, so I, and I and I guess your recognition of it is um, really meaningful. It <laughs> I have to read a lot of pleadings that are really terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I am you know, sure that I, is true. <laughs> and I have to and I have to read it. We have to read it. I just, not just me, but all of us in the in the community who do this work have to read these things that are filed by Alliance Defending Freedom and all of these groups that are out there saying that trans people aren't real and we don't deserve protection and um and, and we we don't belong in public spaces or or we don't deserve to have jobs. Like it is it is some real garbage. And, <laughs> and my job as an advocate is to sort through the garbage and make the counterargument. And and it is, um, it can sometimes be very challenging to do that as a person um sharing that identity with the with the community that that is being talked about in that way. Um and and I it's an honor to carry that burden, but I just gotta say it's um I really appreciate you <laughs> saying that because damn some days it sucks. <laughs> I bet that's true. Yeah, yeah. I bet that's true. Well, I really appreciate um the work that you're doing for our family. And um I thank you so much for your time today. And I also wanted to ask you before I send you back, um into your life, if you would shout out a queero, which is a person, place, or thing made you feel like you could be who you are today. Gosh. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me and and for letting me talk about uh, my work and and the work of Lambda Legal. Um, and uh, you know, I'll have to say, a queero who's been um, who I've been thinking about a lot lately um, is Lou Sullivan. And I don't know if you've heard about Lou, no. but um, Lou is certainly not the first uh, gay trans man, but the one we know the most about. And he. Um, he came up in the 50s, 60s, 70s um, and came into his identity as a trans man, but, um, uh, you know, even more nuanced as a gay trans man, right? A, a trans man who who loved and was loved by men. And um, he fought the, the, you know, sort of the medical establishment for years because at that time they were only giving... Um, uh, HRT and and gender affirming surgeries to trans people who would who were who could demonstrate heterosexuality, and so Lou had this added challenge of of 
you know, fighting to be the gay trans man that he was. And, um, you know, he he kept extensive diaries, which have now been um, uh, uh, turned into a book called uh, We Both Laughed in Pleasure, um, which I encourage everyone to check out. Um, and, uh, you know, he fought until his last breath for trans people, especially trans masculine people, to be uh, recognized um, and to have access to the care that they needed. You know, he he famously said, um, you know, he, he learned he was... Uh, he he learned of his HIV diagnosis during the during the epidemic, and he famously said in an interview that um, they wouldn't let me live like a gay man, but now I'm going to die like one. Um, and you know, Lou was uh, such a neat and interesting person, and I'm just sad every day he's not still here with us fighting. But um, I take a lot of inspiration from you know his life and his work, and you know his belief that fighting for one another is really the best and only way to to spend our one precious life so well that was incredibly beautiful and you are very well spoken (laughs) thank you well (laughs) i I, bet you are an attorney i bet (laughs) i bet you do great Uh, closing arguments i try try. yeah no thank you so much it was beautiful thanks cameron i I appreciate it very much